0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben.
1: I'm Sarah. What makes this a bonus episode?
0: Well... A few weeks back, uh, about a month ago, we had talked on the podcast that we were looking for a copy of Unheimliche Geschichten from 1932, a remake of the earlier Unheimliche Geschichten that we covered in episode 4.
1: Yeah, it was like 1919 or something.
0: Yes. We knew that the film existed, we knew it had come out on VHS in Germany in the 90s, but apparently had never been re-released since and was nowhere online. Ultimately, we weren't able to find it in time to watch it for the show in kind of the regular chronological order. But a few weeks too late, (laughs) uh, a copy has shown up that we are able to watch. So we are sort of rewinding the clocks and slotting it in as a bonus episode between Vampire, which was episode 31, and White Zombie, which is episode 32.
1: So this is?
0: Episode 31B because this remake of Unheimliche Geschichten came out on July 9th, 1932. Cool. Thank you to YouTube user Koi Ostervan, who uploaded the remake to YouTube. The YouTube upload looks like it's just a straight rip of the VHS release, which is to be expected. It's going to be a little interesting for us to watch, uh, because we're going to be able to understand it because it has German YouTube closed captioning, Uh, subtitles, that then through the magic of Google Translate, a built-in Google Translate that YouTube has, uh, we're going to be auto-translating it to English. It's (laughs) going to be interesting for us to watch... Cause I I don't know how the translation's gonna come out on these auto-generated German subtitles that are then being auto-translated to English.
1: What was the one that we watched that was like like oh, was that was, German um, first, translated to Russian, and then we like Google translated it to English?
0: That was Alrauna, which actually had one more step in there because it was a German film. The print that we had was a Spanish print. Right. And then that Spanish print had written properly translated Russian subtitles, and then we were auto-Google translating the Russian subtitles to English. Right. We ended up not liking Alrauna very much.
1: I don't think it was because of the translation. No, it
0: was a bad movie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Ironically, Alrauna was the last time we saw Paul Wigner. Yeah. Who we will be seeing again in this film. Also, Unheimliche Geschichten is sort of the last German Expressionist Horror film in the traditional period of that genre that we will be watching and sort of the first the first to really come after the like boom in horror films in America, Kind of our first German film in sound. Does
1: Vampire count?
0: Exactly. Like Vampire <laughs> technically came out you know after some of the American horror films, even though it was mostly made before. And Vampire also is technically a German film. In the German language despite being shot in a few different languages and set in France and mostly more like a silent film than a sound film. Yeah. So *Vampire* had come out in Germany in May of 1932 to uh, pretty bad critical reception as we described in that episode mm-hmm. and then the last German film we saw before that was Alrauna in 1928. And then the previous German film before that that we saw, I believe, was the 1926 remake of Student of Prague. Um, So the last time we really checked in with Germany as, like, a country in terms of politics and history (laughs) was in our Student of Prague episode in 1926. And from 1926 to 1932, I have this sinking feeling that maybe a lot has changed.
1: Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, when I was going over the history in the Student of Prague episode, episode 18, I kind of left things hanging at around 1929. Mm. But just to refresh listeners with what was going on, because history is kind of a long story.
0: Yeah, and complicated.
1: And complicated. So at this period in Germany's history, it's the Weimar Republic with Friedrich Ebert as president. Mm Mm-hmm. The dissolution of the army thanks to the Treaty of Versailles uh, happening in around 1920 meant a lot of volunteer servicemen were sent home, but they still had this military training.
2: Uh
1: So with 1920 and, like, throughout this period, actually, there were a lot of revolts and attempted coups uh, to try to affect political change, kind of the most uh, famous one. I guess is the beer hall pushed with Hitler.
0: Mm-hmm. That he went to jail for.
1: Yes. And that's when he wrote Mein Kampf. Yes. Between nineteen twenty one and twenty-four, Germany was defaulting on their loans. So there was like a period of like super bad hyperinflation because the government thought that if they printed more money they would have more money, but they didn't have the economic resources to back up the value of that money. It was just a bad situation all around. Mm-hmm. In 1923, Chancellor Gustav Stresemann created the Reichsmark as mm-hmm. like, a new currency to try to like do a big reset button on this economic situation.
0: Uh, to remind listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Germany in this period had a chancellor and a president. Mm-hmm. And the chancellor was head of the government, whereas the president was the head of state. Uh, And most countries have a division between those two things. Like in Canada, our head of state is Queen Elizabeth II, and our head of government is the prime minister. But in countries like America, the president of the United States is both roles. So just to clarify for some listeners who aren't familiar with that.
1: Yeah, totally. And the economic situation did improve. It was still not very stable, but by around five years later... Uh, in 1928, the economic situation was was a lot better. This was also helped thanks to certain plans that were really just loans from the U.S. to help Germany, called the Dawes Plan and later the Young Plan. So Germany was doing better um, with a lot of financial aid from other countries, specifically the U.S which left it particularly vulnerable in 1929 when the Wall Street market crashed.
0: Right. Happened. <laughs> sure. Yep. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but yep.
1: Yeah. And uh, Gustav Streisman, um, this chancellor who helped the economic situation, he died in 1929 right before the crash. Mm-hmm. So the guy who was like their go-to fix-it guy uh, wasn't around during this time. So with the Great Depression happening, I kind of talked about the Great Depression from a U.S. perspective in episode 23 on the Bat Whispers,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: this is obviously on the German perspective.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So as with many places during this time period, with production levels falling and exports not selling, people were laid off and there were banks failing. And I think what was like really frustrating for Germany is... This new economic situation or hardship or hurdle or whatever you want to call it, it all happened out of their control yeah. because of what happened in the states. So I think it was like particularly frustrating for them because of that. With all of this frustration about the economic situation and also fears about going back to that hyperinflation period in the 20s, the government wasn't really doing much. There was a lot of um, disagreements, not a lot of cooperation to kind of get financial aid out there. And there was also fears about doing anything with financial aid because, you know, they had fucked up so much like a decade earlier. Right. So in 1930... Chancellor Hermann Mueller of the Social Democratic Party went to President Hindenburg and asked him to invoke Article 48 of the German Constitution, which would give, essentially, emergency powers to the president to make decrees and kind of sidestep their parliament, called the Reichstag, in order to try to get something done. hmm Hindenburg was like, nah, dude. And Reichstag was like, what the fuck, guy. Uh, and that led to Chancellor Mueller resigning. Mm the Reichstag was dissolved to have new elections for essentially what would be considered a lack of confidence yeah. vote. Yeah, yeah, uh, Canadian terminology. Yeah. Um, so then in the 1930 elections, uh, Heinrich Brüning of the Catholic Center Party was elected as the new chancellor. And it was in this election that the Nazi party went from the smallest party to the second largest party. hmm And it was also, like, leading up to 1932, both the Nazi and Communist parties were gaining a lot of popularity, and the Social Democratic Party collapsed. Okay. A lot of this kind of came out from uh, the economic situation escalating out of control, especially with the 1931 collapse of the Credit Anstalt, which is a uh, bank in Vienna. Okay. um, But a pretty major bank in Europe. By 1932... Unemployment in Germany was around 30%, and Hitler ran for the presidency, but he lost to the incumbent Hindenburg. But 1932 saw a couple of elections. First was in July, and then again in November, with the Nazi party gaining support up to 33% of the seats, making it... Like a minority government, but it was still a Nazi government.
0: Yeah, so they had the the most number of seats, but they didn't have a majority in uh, the Reichstag, which means that they would have to have alliances with other parties in order to pass legislation.
1: Exactly, but uh, Hitler would still be considered the chancellor, given that
0: yeah, he's his the leader of the party that
1: that yeah. has the most seats. Kind of interesting to note that in both those elections, there was like around eighty percent voter turnout. Okay. Hitler won that election in November 1932, Uh, his cabinet wasn't officially brought together until January 30th, 1933, Mm -hmm. because of, honestly, it was a little, like, Game of Thrones-type coalitions and backstabbing going on to try to get yet another election going on, Mm. or something like that, but finally Hindenburg was like, no, we're just doing this, and just, like, swore Hitler in. Uh, So that's 1933.
0: This film came out in July of '32, Mm -hmm. so before Hitler would be chancellor, because you said that was in the November election.
1: Yes, but this would be right around that first election in 1932, with the Nazi Party gaining a lot of traction.
0: Right. This is sort of a period where the Nazis aren't quite in power yet, but we're right on the cusp of it, and they're certainly growing in popularity. The violence between the sort of paramilitary wing of the Nazis, the SA, uh, was growing in terms of targeting of uh, Jewish Germans as well as targeting of uh, Communist Party organizations. There was, um, the the Communist Party had like its own paramilitary organization, the Rot Front, which like fought with the SA in like street brawls and there was lots of violence going on uh, between those groups. You you mentioned at the start of what you were talking about that there were all these people who'd been in the German army in World War One, and then when the war had ended, they didn't stay, you know, as these career officers, but they had the training, and they had the frustration, and it was very easy for, you know, the Nazi party to pick those guys up and turn them into uh, the SA.
1: Yeah, and um, when it was that 1930 election, when the Nazi party went from the smallest to the second largest party, after the results of that election were announced, brown shirts were like marching in the streets and they marched into parliament. When they called attendance, they say, present, hail Hitler. Mm -hmm. The Nazi party has always been fanaticism, almost, or like a cult of personality as well. For
0: sure, for sure. And I mean, so, you know, the picture that we're trying to paint here is a Germany that is not really Nazi-controlled yet, but it's not like the Nazis came out of nowhere, you know, exactly. and this is a period where they, they have a lot of popularity and they already have a lot of control. It's maybe just not officially absolute yet. Exactly. Um, if you've seen the 1972 musical Cabaret, uh, this is the period in which that film is set, so if you're familiar <laughs> with that, that's the picture. <laughs> that's 1932. The original version of Unheimliche Geschichten that we saw in episode 4 came out in 1919, which is quite a ways back. That's like pretty straight on like 30 episodes ago.
1: Eerie Tales came out uh, right before the German revolution that established the Weimar Republic.
0: Right, so the Weimar Republic came in with Unheimliche Geschichten and it went out with Unheimliche Geschichten, <laughs> is basically what we're saying.
1: Yeah, so just don't we make it,
0: yeah. um,
1: <laughs> no more revolutions.
0: So the original version of Unheimliche Geschichten was a horror anthology film, and it featured, I think it was five different sort of short stories with a framing narrative. It was The Apparition, uh, The Hand, The Black Cat, uh, The Suicide Club, the suicide club And then... um, French
1: aristocrats.
0: Yeah, I think that one was just called The Haunting. Yeah. Um, So those were the five. And it had a framing narrative of death, a prostitute, and devil reading books in a bookstore in Berlin. Yeah. Uh, So this version is also, in a way, an anthology film. And it is also, in a way, based on some short stories. There's only three Mm -hmm. that are used. Two returning from the original version and one new story but the frame of the framing device of this version is a little interesting in that it's not so much a framing device as what they've done is they've taken the three stories and merged them all into one plot with characters running between all three
1: interesting
0: yes uh in the order the cat and then the second is the system of dr tar and professor feather and the last is the suicide club so two edgar Allan poe stories and a Robert Louis Stevenson.
1: I'll just give a brief synopsis of what these stories are about. For sure. The Black Cat was published in August 1843 in the Saturday Evening Post. It's very reminiscent of the Telltale Heart. Mm -hmm. It's this first-person narrative of this guy, he's in this loving marriage, and he loves this cat, and then he becomes an alcoholic and starts to abuse the cat. The cat never wants to be around him, and instead becomes very close to his wife. In a drunken rage to try to kill the cat, the wife tries to stop him, and he kills her instead. Um, He hides his wife's body in the walls in the basement, and the cat kind of disappears. And when the police come to investigate, the cat shows up again, and guides the police to the body in the basement.
0: Mm-hmm. The 1919 Unheimliche Geschichten did a version of that where...
1: The cat is in the wall and breaks
0: out. Yes, and they also added a character for Conrad Veit to play because every single story in that movie was a love triangle between the three actors.
1: Yes. The second story from Poe is uh, a short story called The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. This was published in Graham's magazine in November 1845. Uh, so this is kind of interesting. It's actually more of a dark comedy than a horror. Mm. So this guy is traveling France with a friend of his, and just before they part ways, his friend introduces him to Monsieur Mallard, who runs this mental institution in the south of France. And this institution is known for this system of soothing, where uh, to treat the patients, you just kind of acknowledge their delusion. If someone thinks that they're a chicken, then you give them corn to feed. Uh, You treat them like a chicken. Mm. Uh, That kind of thing. As this guy is meeting Monsieur Millard and is getting a tour of the place, Monsieur Millard starts to talk about this new system that he's brought in called the system of Dr. Tarn Professor Feather. The guy joins um, Monsieur and uh, the other staff um, at this dinner, and everyone's wearing, like, ill-fitted clothes. There's this band that's playing, and it's a whole whack of different instruments, but they're not really playing together. It's just people with instruments playing random things together, but everyone's pretending like it's a fancy dinner party. Hmm. During this odd dinner, Monsieur Mallard goes into a bit more detail about this new system developed by... Dr. Tarn, Professor Feather, and starts telling how, with the system of soothing, the patients were able to overthrow their doctors and their staff being tarred and feathered. Uh, just as, you know, this information comes out, the staff who have been locked away as new patients, quote-unquote patients, uh, they revolt and put all of the patients back, including Monsieur Millard, who was actually the superintendent before going mad himself. Hmm. And it ends with the narrator being very puzzled by this whole experience and wondering just who is Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather.
0: is not very bright, huh?
1: No. So that's why it's more of a dark comedy than what I would call a horror. Sure. But it's Poe, so it has to be gothic horror, right? And then the last story, uh, which was also shown in the first Eerie Tales is The Suicide Club, uh, which is actually a kind of like a collection of short stories, mm-hmm. but there's a plot line that moves through them with the, the ma- two main characters. Uh, so when you said that this remake does the same thing, I think that's really interesting, and I wonder if they were inspired by the structure of The Suicide Club novel to do so with this. Hmm. So The Suicide Club was published in the London Magazine throughout 1878 before being collected as, like, a whole thing. And it's a great example of detective fiction. It stars Prince floritzel of Bohemia and Colonel Geraldine. There's three stories, or I guess you could even call them, like, whole chapters, mm. where a detecting pair discover the existence of the Suicide Club through this guy giving out cream tarts for free, And they learn about this secret society of people gambling with their lives. So Flortzell and Geraldine infiltrate and disband the club and plan to track down the president to bring him to justice. And through these other stories, that's them tracking him down. Geraldine and Floritzal track down the president. He gets cornered and Floritzal and the president duel to the death and Flortzell wins. Hmm. Um, And that's... The Suicide Club.
0: The version of the Suicide Club in the 1919 Unheimliche Geschichten was like a detective comes across the Suicide Club. Do we know he's a detective? No. Isn't
1: that till the end?
0: That's Yeah, that's a a twist ending reveal, but it's fine. And then (laughs) goes in to investigate, and it's like a club of people who you'd get dealt cards, and then if you're dealt like the Ace of Spades or something, you die at midnight. Yeah. And the president of the club is Conrad Veidt, and then it's actually all a sting operation to arrest Conrad Veidt, right? I just remember it was pretty weird. I mostly yeah. just remember the scene of, like, Conrad Veidt and Reinhold Schutzel, who's playing the detective, like, at a big table, and, like, Conrad Veidt's like, when I press this button at midnight, you're gonna die, and stuff like that. yeah. The original 1919 version of the film was directed by Rickard Oswald, uh, and this remake is as well. Okay. I talked about in the original episode how Oswald was a very prolific director. He owned his own production company, which made the original version of this film and this one as well. Uh, so he was bankrolling his own films. Before Eerie Tales, he had done um, Different from the Others uh, with Conrad Veidt, the uh, the world's first uh, film about homosexual men, mm-hmm. um, and did a bunch of other movies. Um, we haven't seen any of Oswald's films in between the 1919 Eerie Tales and this one, um, but he was very prolific in between. He directed over 30 films in the intervening 13 years, many with Conrad Veit and the other kind of usual suspects of the German film scene in the 1920s. Uh, most notably, in 1930, Oswald directed a sound remake of Alrauna, which we watched the 1928 silent version, which had been directed by Henrik Galeen. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound remake also starred Brigitte Helm in the title role, uh, so she played the same role again, you know, two years later in sound. But otherwise, uh, the rest of the cast was totally different.
1: Okay, do we want to explain why we skipped it?
0: Yeah, so. The sound remake of Al Rauna has a toned down and more realistic take on the story than the original 1928 version. And we didn't even feel the 1928 version counted as horror. Uh, we just kind of felt like it was a generic drama with like a weird, very minimal sci-fi aspect to it. Uh, the 1930 version is even more toned down, even less like a horror story, even less like sci-fi. Um, so, if the 28 version didn't count for the list, the 30 version definitely doesn't. Cool. This film, Unheimliche in 1932, would be one of Oswald's last films he would make before fleeing Germany and Austria for France in 1934. Uh, as a Jew, Oswald was not safe once the Nazis took power in 1933. He made one film in France in 1938 before fleeing for America ahead of the German invasion of France Mm -hmm. in World War II. Oswald would direct three American films in the 1940s, the last one being 1949's The Lovable Cheat, uh, which featured the by then fairly unpopular Buster Keaton in a small supporting role, uh, Mm -hmm. one of his last. Oswald would return to Germany after World War II Uh, and spend the rest of his life there, passing away in West Germany in 1963. Oswald had done the adapting and the writing, as it were, for the 1919 version, but of course this is a sound film coming 13 years later. Yeah. So uh, this film needed a screenwriter, and this film's writer was Heinz Goldberg, uh, who was also a German Jew and would similarly flee Germany in 1933, for a series of exile homes uh, before returning to Germany in the 1950s. The film's cinematographer, Heinrich Gärtner, had basically the same story. Another German Jew fled in 1933. He settled in Spain and actually spent the rest of his life working in the Spanish film industry under the name Enrique Gärtner, introducing the style of expressionism to Spanish film.
1: Cool. I mean, like, not cool that he had to flee, but cool that, like, he introduced the (laughs) style there. Right.
0: Uh, The cast for this remake is more or less completely different. Anita Berber had died in 1928 of a morphine overdose. Conrad Veidt, uh, his wife was Jewish, so he fled from Germany ahead of the Nazis to Britain and then later to America. Uh, Reinhold Schunzel. Uh, was still acting in Germany at this time. In fact, he was so popular that despite being Jewish, the Nazi party named him an honorary Aryan uh, and allowed him to keep working in film throughout World War II. Okay. Because he was such a popular actor. But none of those actors are in this version of the film. The remake features an entirely new cast, most significantly our old friend Paul Wigner, Mm -hmm. in his very first sound role. Uh, the last we saw Wigner was the nineteen twenty eight Alrauna, and since that time he's only appeared in one film, Vundvogel, in uh nineteen thirty.
1: That's fairly odd. Like that's so few. What, yeah, do you know what he was up to before like
0: Um he was acting on the stage, and yeah, it is like certainly a slowed down work history compared to most everyone else we've talked about in cinema in this time period. Yeah. Um, This would be his first sound film. As I said, it's also likely going to be the last time we see Paul Wigner on this podcast. Okay. He was 58 at this point. Uh, When the Nazis came to power, Wigner did not leave Germany. Uh, He instead uh, became a state actor, appearing in Nazi propaganda films. However, during the war, Wigner donated his money from those films to resistance groups and hid fugitives in his apartment. For this action, he was allowed to keep working in the Berlin art scene after the war was over uh, and worked to improve living conditions in Berlin in the post-war era. He would die in his sleep in 1948.
1: How old would he be?
0: He'd be 74. Okay. Okay. The film also stars Harold Paulsen, uh, who, is a famous, who is a famous German actor who originated the role of Mac the Knife in the original Berlin performance of The Threepenny Opera. Uh, he also appeared in the 1930 remake of Al Rauna and continued to act regularly in German film until his death in 1954. Also in a very small role. In this film, so we're gonna have to be kinda on the lookout for him. We will see our last of John Gatoit. Long time listeners will remember Gatoit as Scapanelli in the 1913 version of Student of Prague. Oh! Uh, that was his very first film role. He was also the barber in Genuina yeah. and Professor Bulver in Nosferatu. Unheimliche Geschichten would be Gatoit's last film. As a Jew, Gatowit had to flee Germany in 1933 with his brother-in-law, Henrik Geline. Geline went from Sweden to the UK and finally ended up in the US, but Gotoit fled to Denmark and then to Poland. In 1942, he was murdered by the SS in Krakow. This uh, remake of Unheimliche Geschichten... Revisits many of the hallmarks of classic German expressionist horror film through the lens of black comedy. It's sort of a last gasp for this style uh, before the Nazi-run film industry largely suppressed expressionism as an art movement as well as suppressing the horror genre as a whole for the most part.
1: So we, we've had previous conversations and past episodes about how the German expressionist style was seen as like extravagant, but why horror?
0: The purpose of the Nazi-run German film industry, uh, which we're probably going to speak about in some future episodes, was not always just to be like rah-rah Nazis are great, but also to present a heroic, positive view of life. The idea was to show the German population sort of glamorous things and positive things and happy things and um, heroic things, and horror didn't fit in with that. Okay. Um, you wanted the, the, the goal was to keep the population in good spirits uh, and not thinking about all of these awful things that were happening.
1: So heroes rather than survivors
0: yeah and and not showcasing. Anything that was too terribly distressing, but instead, you know, a lot of musicals and a lot of costume dramas, uh, historical dramas, that kind of thing. Okay. There would be a few attempts at horror films uh, in the Nazi period, uh, I think two, and we'll probably end up getting to them uh, eventually. Um, But in terms of classic German Expressionist horror, this is kind of the end of it. Okay. Okay. And it's worth noting that, like, we haven't seen some German Expressionism in a while because the American films were coming out in Germany. The theory of the European film industry had always kind of been not to compete with Hollywood at its own game. Uh, so why do horror films if, you know, these uh, American ones were coming? Vampire hadn't been very successful. So, you know, there wasn't really a big need for a native horror industry in Germany anymore. That being said, it very much was a goal of the Nazi film industry to compete with Hollywood at its own game because the Nazis sort of identified the Hollywood style of glamorizing people as valuable.
1: So if horror is not popular in Germany, like the Nazis haven't taken power as of this movie being released, but not wanting to compete with Hollywood at its own game, whatever, why do you think Oswald made this movie
0: well i wouldn't say that horror wasn't popular um because audiences were enjoying you know dracula frankenstein whatever when they came yeah. to germany but uh more of like more of a financial risk more of a financial risk i think largely the fact that Oswald had his own film production company and could kind of do as he pleased
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and the fact that in this version of when gets in There was, you know, a chance to do stuff in sound. There was a chance to work with Paul Wigner. There was a chance to throw in some black comedy, that sort of stuff. I suspect we may be able to answer the question of why was this movie made at this time after we watch it? But I don't really have a lot of firm answers um, to that particular question. Mm -hmm. Um, As for the expressionist style of film itself, I I talked about this being kind of the end of its traditional period what will enable that style to survive is this sort of interesting thing that happens um, where it morphs into film noir. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that a bit in, few, in past episodes as well. But the main catalyst for that is the film M yeah. from 1931. And that was a film by Fritz Lang. And when Fritz Lang and F.W. Murnau and these other directors came to America, you know, Paul Lenny, who had already come to America, uh, Carl Freund, You know, they brought that style with them. And M isn't a detective story. It's not really film noir, but it is a crime thriller shot in, like, an expressionist style. And with that sort of influencing things, the expressionist style found a new home in America, not in horror, but in crime and detective drama, which ends up creating film noir in the 40s.
1: Yeah. Cool. Um, So we kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but this... Version of Unheim-
0: Unheimliche, Geschichten?
1: Un- Unheimliche Geschichten is available on our YouTube playlist, which you can find on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.tumblr.com. As so we hope you'll watch along with us, and we will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back.
0: See you on the other side, everybody. Hi, everyone. I know we talked up the YouTube upload of this movie quite a bit in our introduction. Ironically, after we recorded this episode, but before we were able to upload it, that YouTuber's account was...
1: Deactivated.
0: Deactivated. It's not because they uploaded this film, this film is in public domain, but it is for other copyright violations, so right now it isn't actually on the Scream Scene playlist. Uh, But if I do find another YouTube copy, I will try and get it back up there. So, sorry for everyone who was hoping to be able to watch this film along with us.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Unheimliche Geschichten from
0: 1932. Good job on the pronunciation. Before we get into it, I want to tell the viewers a little bit about the viewing experience we had watching <laughs> this. So I, I mentioned before the break kind of a little bit about what I was expecting from the subtitling for this movie. What you need to understand about the version we watched on YouTube, it has German closed captioning that is auto-generated. Uh, so no one wrote the German closed captioning. It's, it's Google listening to the dialogue and then putting out the words. Uh, and then... We auto-translated it using Google Translate, which is a built-in thing on YouTube to hear it in, or read it in English. And, like, if you write in a sentence into Google Translate, it's smart enough to kind of understand a bit of context and translate accordingly. But with the captions being auto-generated, it meant that Google Translate was translating a word at a time, which meant that it didn't have a good way of discerning things like... Sentences beginning and ending, or turns of phrase, mm-hmm. but we watched the movie, and I will say the subtitles, while pretty much very loose, yeah. did help yeah uh if they weren't there, it would have taken away a piece of the puzzle. I was saying to Sarah after we finished it that like being able to understand this movie was like thirty percent because of the subtitles, and then like thirty percent, just context clues of like who's talking and what their gestures are and how they're blocked and where they are. And then 30% because Sarah told me what the short stories it was based on were about beforehand. So I was sort of able to interpret all of that together.
1: And the last 10%?
0: Yeah, that's still the, like, I didn't understand that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give a plot summary. It's to the best of my abilities. (laughs) Paul Wegener plays a mad scientist. He has like Frankenstein's lab in his basement uh, of his otherwise normal house. And despite being like a weird mad scientist working on weird creepy things that we don't really understand, uh, he has this wife, and she has a black cat. And she comes down to check on him, like, hey, when's your crazy unexplained mad science going to be done? He's just kind of like, you know, soon, whatever. And he doesn't like the cat. He's like, how many times have I told you like, not to bring this cat down? Uh, I don't like this cat and the cat like freaks out and like knocks over some of his equipment and he gets really upset about that and he kind of threatens the cat a little bit and she's like, no, don't. Uh, So instead he threatens her and ends up killing her. Meanwhile, a journalist named Frank Briggs is driving his car with his girlfriend and their engine overheats and he has to stop and put some cooling fluid in it and he happens to stop outside Paul Wegener's house just as he hears the scream of Wigner murdering his wife. Frank Briggs is played by Harold Paulson. Uh, Wegner's character is never given a name, so I'm just going to keep calling him Paul Wigner.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Briggs kind of, like, knocks on the door, like, hey, what's up? Uh, <laughs> there was a scream. And Paul Wigner's like, go away! Uh, so a few days pass, uh, the wife has gone missing, uh, and Briggs manages to sort of convince the police to investigate by saying, like, hey, I was there on the night, and blah, blah, blah. So he goes with the police. They go into Wigner's house. They're like, can we ask you a few questions? Can we look around? So he shows them around. He's a little unhinged about it. Uh, And then they're like, hey, what about your cellar? So he takes them down to the basement where his mad science is. And, you know, still no dead wife here, so hey, whatever. And then they hear the cat meow, Uh, And the cat's meowing from behind one of the walls, so they bust open the wall, and there is Dead Wife. Wigner's like, shit, and runs, and uh, Frank Briggs chases after him. And Paul Wigner runs into the world of German Expressionism and (laughs) finds, like, a closed-down, like, animatronics funhouse, basically. Like, it's a little more than just a wax museum, because they're all set up to, like, move and stuff when there's power.
1: It's like if a wax museum got crossed with Chuck E. Cheese.
0: Right, or like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. So uh, it's closed. It's the middle of the night. So Wigner's kind of skulking around looking for a place to hide. Briggs comes in after him and meets up with the owner, like, hey, have you seen anyone around? Because the owner lives at this place. Uh, the owner is played by John Gatoit. And he's like, no, I haven't seen anyone. Then Wigner kind of jumps out of the shadows at Briggs. And they have a fight. Uh, The power turns on, so all the animatronics start moving around while they're fighting all around them. And during the fight, both of them are injured. And Wigner gets away. Uh, Wigner makes it to a nearby hospital. He's talking to a doctor. You know, he tells the doctor, like, I murdered my wife, blah, blah, blah. And kind of comes off as delusional. So the doctor has him transferred to a mental asylum. It's kind of clear that this is Wigner's plan. Like, that he's going to get transferred to this asylum so that he can have a chance to get away. Briggs, who has also been injured, uh, gets directed to, coincidentally, the same hospital for his injuries by John Gatoit. Shows up at the hospital, and the doctor's like, yeah, it's been a busy night. Like, we just had a crazy person in here who we had to refer to the asylum. He thought he had, like, killed his wife and something about a black cat. Briggs is like, ugh, okay. <laughs> so he goes after Wigner to the asylum, shows up, Uh, at the front desk where the the sort of the night shift guy running the front desk is like a little bit weird um, but lets Briggs use the phone so he can call the newspaper and let them know like hey I'm on the guy's trail here's where I am. Briggs uh, continues on into the asylum to look for Wigner getting directions from the weird guard and eventually meets the director of this asylum who's a little weird and he asks him for his help in finding Wigner. And the director's like, all right, I'll show you all the cells and everyone in them. None of them are Wigner. Uh, And then the director brings up like, hey, we're having a dinner party for the staff tonight. Like you should stay. Uh, So they go and have this dinner party and it becomes increasingly clear through this very bizarre dinner party that these are all the patients and they've taken over the asylum and the actual staff are locked up. Mm -hmm. Um, But they won't let Briggs leave the party. He keeps trying and they keep stopping him. Uh, Meanwhile Paul Wigner wakes up in the asylum because he had been um, knocked out. Yeah he'd been drugged by the doctors when they transferred him over Um, and he kind of wakes up and there's no one watching or guarding him because of course the inmates are running the asylum. He finds the staff locked up and chooses not to do anything about that. Makes his way to the dinner party and Briggs is like yeah that's the guy like that's the guy I'm here to find. Um, and the Erzsatz director says like, is this true? And Wigner's like, no, that's, it's lies. And they're like, alright, and they let Wigner go. And one of the patients is under this delusion that she is a monarch and declares that slander and lies are punishable by death. So they're gonna kill Briggs, uh, but that's when the cops all show up uh, because Briggs had called out earlier. Everything gets under control. So some time passes, there's sort of an ellipsis of six months. Uh, which was a little jarring and hard to follow just because of the version of the movie we were watching. But essentially, six months have passed, Wigner's still missing, and people have been dying strangely. Twelve people have kind of died over the last six months for no apparent reason. Briggs is trying to look into this mystery, and he manages to kind of track down that all these people were members of a club that meets at this weird old house. So Briggs goes to the club. There's no outside doors to get in, Mm -hmm. uh, which is strange. But he hops over a fence and finds, like, a um, (laughs) chute that, like, he slides down into the building in. So he gets into this building and finds out that this is the Suicide Club. Uh, In this version of the Suicide Club, from best I could pick up, all the members are criminals who... Or mentally ill. Or mentally ill. So people who... Don't have a lot to live for because maybe they already have the death sentence that sort of thing and they've paid to be members of this club uh, but what they didn't know going in is once you've joined the club you can never leave so they're all trapped there and once a night the president of the club decides who will be the one who dies and they kind of I guess they're like taking bets and stuff on who's gonna live the longest and stuff but you know cuz it's a game to them some of them are really into it like you know, whatever, they've got nothing better to do. Uh, and some of them maybe were into it when they joined, but, like, time has passed and they now want to get the heck out of here. Yeah. Briggs is brought to the president, who turns out to be Paul Wigner, who's, like, now, like, dressed in, like, evening tuxedo with, like, slick back hair and a cigarette and is very much in his element. And they all get all the members together. Wigner decides that Briggs is now the newest member, and they draw cards from a deck, and whoever draws the ace of spades is gonna die that night. No one else draws the ace of spades, and then Briggs goes last and draws it, and Briggs is like, well, yeah, I, I kind of figured that was what was gonna happen. Like, mm-hmm. this is not surprising. Everyone leaves the r- main room, and Wigner shows Briggs the method of his death, where he has him sit down in a chair. The first button seals him to the chair, uh, and then he, like, hits another button, and this giant, elaborate clock is revealed, uh, and he says, You know, the second button when I push it is going to kill you. The third button opens all the doors to let everyone in or out. And I think, based on what I could figure out, this elaborate mechanical device is what Wigner was designing in his basement at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. Best I could figure. Anyways,
1: I also feel like because we see someone die of fright or stress over having to yet again pick a card, Mm -hmm. that the reason why the police are like, we don't know how these people are dying is because it's more of a psychological effect Mm -hmm. rather than an actual, like, knife to the chest kind of deal.
0: Sure. Wigner makes a big speech about how he's going to let Briggs kind of stew by himself in this room trapped until midnight, and then that's when he'll die. So, Wigner leaves, but he watches Briggs from, like, a hole in the ceiling. (laughs) Uh, And Briggs, you know, waits till midnight, and then he, like, screams and clutches his chest and spins around and dies. And Wigner comes in like, aha, I've won. And then suddenly, Briggs is alive because he's just faked everything and traps Wigner in the chair and kind of spits his own speech about how all the buttons work back at him. Hits the third button to open all the doors, let everybody out. All the Suicide Club members, like, heartily thank Briggs for freeing them. They all each get, like, a moment, which is a little weird, because none of them are really important. And then the cops show up and arrest Wigner. The end.
1: Not quite. A wax figure of Wigner oh, is added to the wax museum at the very end.
0: That's right. That's right. That's the final scene, yes. So, yes, he's, he's <laughs> added to, like, the, the Hall of Criminals with, like, Jack the Ripper and stuff in the museum. Yes, yeah. that's, right. that's right. Then it's the end. Yes. <laughs> what did you think of this movie, Sarah?
1: You know, despite the difficulties we've had with the subtitles, mm-hmm. um, I'm very happy that we were able to watch this film. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy that we got to see a sound film with Paul Wagner. His voice wasn't as deep as I had imagined. I think I imagined Karloff's voice yeah, he's coming a, from him. he's
0: this big, broad guy, right? Really. Right.
1: Like, you'd think that, like, his voice would, like, bellow from inside him, and instead it's just like a regular voice. Yeah, it's,
0: it's kind of like a little high, a little reedy. Uh, it's not like super high or anything, but it's just like a little softer than maybe you would have expected.
1: Yeah, and I, I really missed seeing Wigner on screen. This movie has a lot of close-ups of him doing like his like...
0: Grimace face? His
1: Wigner face. Yeah. Just doing like the dread scowl the judge, Dredd scowl, eyebrow movements. Uh, he's just so fantastic. Um, so I I really enjoyed this movie.
0: Okay. I thought that the sort of the chase structure uh, did help with giving the three parts of the movie uh, cohesion as well as giving it like greater stakes throughout because, you know, in the original Eerie Tales we were seeing the same actors over and over again but here it's literally the same characters. So by the time we get to Suicide's Club the one-on-one stakes between Wigner and Briggs are, are very high. Um, yeah,
1: when Briggs enters the room and, like, he hasn't seen that it's Wigner yet, but we see Wigner's face sitting in the chair with, like, this huge puff of smoke from his cigarette. It's just kind of like, ah, this asshole again.
0: It's it's very much like a, ah, Mr. Bond, we meet again, like, yeah, kind of well, thing. Yeah, well, especially
1: with the big clock thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I kept thinking it felt like a Bond villain. Yeah, it's,
0: it's very much that. I do think there's some pacing issues like i think Mm -hmm. the middle story uh the dr and professor feather adaptation goes on a little bit too long like the dinner party like gets to a certain point where we're like okay yeah we get it and i think the black cat section at the start is like super short right it's just like she dies and then they find her and there's a cat it's it's the barest things you need to be adapting black cat and then the wax animatronic museum interlude between Black Cat and Tar and Feather that's like I guess fully original more or less it's just kind of there and creepy and it's there for like this action scene of them fighting.
1: The fight goes on way too long. It goes
0: way too long it's not interesting it doesn't really seem choreographed like it just seems like Harold Paulson and Paul Wigner just wrestling around this room while stuff happens and it's just not interesting enough like there's better fights on original Star Trek (laughs) <laughs> than are in this.
1: Totally agree with the, the pacing issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this movie could have been cut down. Like, as much as I enjoyed it, it has definite problems.
0: It could have definitely been cut down. I think it was uh, about an hour and 25 minutes. Yeah. And that's, like, I mean, we've had longer movies. I but think it
1: could be an hour.
0: Yeah, like, certainly the movies that are coming out in 1932 that we're seeing are more around an hour, an hour ten, right? Yeah. I think that the main thing I noticed about this movie that I appreciated, that I liked about it, was the cinematography and the sets. Yeah. Um, You know, it's very dark, high contrast, uh, surreal. It's basically what you would expect from a very late era expressionist film, uh, which by this time I feel like the style has almost completely transitioned to something approaching the look of the later, more realistic film noir. Um, Yeah. There's still, like, an exaggeration to the appearance of things that keeps it expressionistic. Like, the sets are still, you know, a little bit off-kilter, right? Like, the mental asylum sets look pretty weird. The Suicide Club sets are very exaggerated. His bizarre Frankenstein basement of his house. (laughs) um, the, The whole set of the wax museum and the exterior to that. Like, things are still exaggerated enough that you get that expressionist feel. But it's certainly become toned down to where it's mostly just a thing about having the deep shadows and the lighting.
1: Yeah, and when Briggs is at the dinner party and starts to realize that these people are the patients, we get a lovely dutch angle.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of them, but they are very like striking because I don't we don't see them a lot yeah. in this period, like I can't immediately think of other examples. I'm sure there have been, but it was like, "Whoa, a dutch angle" like when it came up. So I do think, like, the visuals are, for the most part, pretty arresting and effective. That said, uh, Sarah, for me, other than the visuals, there's not much to this movie, in my opinion. Um, It's kind of going through the motions of these various plots. There's no music. Despite what the subtitles will tell you. Yeah, Google thought that anything that wasn't talking was music. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's diegetic music.
1: Yeah, yeah. But
0: there's not a lot of it and most of it's pretty silent. There's not much to really speak of with the performances in this movie, with Harold Paulson and Wigner being the only consistent actors. Everyone else just kind of comes and goes to the point where we don't get a great sense of who they are. And even Paul Wigner and Harold Paulson's character, you know, Wigner's good. He's, he's surprisingly good in sound, in fact. Um, he is basically just Paul Wigner though. Like, it's, it's very reminiscent for me of his performance in The Magician.
1: Okay, interesting. Awesome.
0: That's that's what I felt, anyways. Harold Paulson, for all his fame as an actor, he's just sort of there, but, like, there's not much of anything to his role. Like, he's just there pursuing Wigner. Um, It feels sort of like outside of the plot of this movie, these characters don't really have lives, I, I find myself wondering, like, how a mad scientist, psychopath murderer, like, Wigner's character even has this initial setup with, like, a cozy house with a wife. Yeah. Like, it does, it's kind of a little, a little hard to believe. The characters feel a little cardboard to me because we never really know, like, we never really learn what the murderer, um, Paul Wigner's character's motivations are. Or his goals. We never get to really know any of the characters very well. You know, Briggs is after Wigner. Wigner wants to escape Briggs. Along the way, they chase through some short story premises, right? Like, okay, that's kind of the movie to me.
1: I find it so interesting that I'm going to be defending this movie.
0: Yeah, okay. The feeling I got was that it was very competently made. It was very clearly, you know, German expressionist. It had a lot of cool visuals, but that there was nothing really pushing Forward here, like nothing innovative. The movie to me felt a little old-fashioned in how it was staged and shot and how one note the characters were. They felt like the way characters were in these movies back in, you know, the days of the Golem and the early 20s. Uh, Whereas like the characters we've been getting out of these early 30s movies have been much more like well-rounded and and having a lot more depth. I'm specifically thinking of uh, stuff like Old Dark House, but...
1: Yeah, which, like, yeah, they came out in the same year, but, like, keep in mind, this is Germany versus the United States, so sure. there's a bit of distance for those films to cross yeah. uh, in order for them to be released. Uh, and this is
0: early 30s. True, true. I do see your point. It did just, it felt a little, a little flat to me. Like, not bad, okay. you know, enjoyable to watch, fun, mm-hmm. but, like, that there wasn't really a lot here.
1: I completely agree with the German Expressionism in the sets, and the lighting, and the cinematography. Uh, as soon as we go into the basement, it's like, German Expressionism all over the place. When the body is found in the wall, there's like an, a light shining down yeah. on the woman's face. <laughs> yeah,
0: she's got her own light behind the wall there.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, I, I found myself really enjoying uh, the sets throughout all of this. Um, I will say that I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more stark lighting and explicit German Expressionist sets in the asylum.
0: Sure, sure, if there's like one place where you could go a little, little crazier with it.
1: But I think it was also because they were trying to sell the point of like these are staff rather than patients. Mm. I think if it had been more explicitly German Expressionist sets,
0: uh, you would have made the connection sooner. I still thought that the sets still had, like, a bit of that l- look to them that German expressionist sets have of being identifiably sets. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? But
1: I guess what I, I kind of wanted was a bit closer to Caligari. You sure. Know? But I understand why we didn't go that far. And I I also agree with your point about how you can see with with this movie how it goes into film noir. Like, I feel like this movie is really interesting to think about how... This style develops into film noir, especially with this movie coming out of Germany uh, so early as mm. well. Because, like, part of the reason why this feels like a film noir movie is because we're following a journalist.
0: Sure, and he's wearing a fedora and a, sh- and a, and a suit, <laughs> Right. right?
1: It also feels like there's this emphasis on crime rather than horror.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: I think that this is a really interesting film to consider if we were to look at the development of German Expressionism as a style, but we're not. We're a horror movie.
0: Yeah, it does feel like a a little bit of a missing link of how that style switched genres from horror to crime films.
1: I do take issue with your comment that this film, besides the sets, the lighting, etc., being German Expressionist, that there's not anything else here. I take issue with that, because I looked back on my notes when we first watched The First Eerie Tales, and also when we watched Caligari, and I feel like, a bit thematically, but also in the context of when this film was made, I feel like this movie is German Expressionist to make a point.
0: Okay. I was trying to think of what themes I could wring out of this movie, and there's sort of a theme about criminality and its relation to madness that kind of runs through the picture. Um, Perhaps if there were proper subtitles, I would have picked up on more of some of that. But ultimately, I kind of didn't think the movie was really saying much. Uh, So I'm curious to hear (laughs) what you think it was kind of about.
1: I feel like it's something to do with absurdity. Okay. The murderer is only, I guess, found out due to the happenstance of this journalist driving by at this particular time, and the happenstance of this cat being buried with the the wife. Mm. There's, like, an absurdity of the situation in the asylum, and I think that's why the dinner party goes so long, Mm. because they're really showing, like, the absurdity of, like, these people who are insane doing these motions of, like, a proper dinner party. I am a monarch. Right. I'm making music. Right. Um, The barber thinking he's the head of the medical staff. I think there's also something about, like, a certainty of authority because of how the patients were able to overthrow the staff. Like, I feel like there's something there. I don't think it quite gets there. And I think in the Suicide Club segment, you see how someone is able to take advantage of the mentally ill mm. here. Because, like, it's shown that, like, you know, the people who are in this club are people who are trying to escape a situation, whether it be because they are mentally ill or if it's because they're criminals and they think this club will be better than going to jail. mm mm-hmm. German Expressionism has that whole thing about not trusting authority and having a fear of manipulation. Mm -hmm. And that's all really embodied in Wagner.
0: That's true. I mean, I suppose you could present a case about, you know, the Suicide Club section, you know, being about these kind of either down on their luck or mentally ill or criminal people, like basically people on kind of the fringes of society being manipulated into a situation that they're now trapped in, and then being let off a cliff, essentially, by this kind of charismatic leader. You know, you could make maybe an argument of Wigner's character in that segment almost being kind of representative of a Hitler-like figure. So I, I can sort of see where you're going with that.
1: To think about German Expressionism and how its goal is to display the psychological nature of its characters on the sets Mm -hmm. and how we go from the mad scientist basement, Mm -hmm. to, which is like Paul Wegener and his element, to the Suicide Club, where we also see Paul Wegener in his element, and it's like a Bond villain, right? Right. We go from mad scientist to Bond villain. Right. Um, I feel like there's still the impulse there of showing the psychological nature of our Character here in the set. So, just to kind of tie Wagner's character a bit more to the German Expressionist goals. Mm-hmm. I think what's also interesting is that, like, German Expressionism traditionally deals with feelings of madness, betrayal, and, like, other dark emotional subjects. And what's weird with this is we have the Suicide Club, and with our characters. Briggs and, like, the people trapped in the Suicide Club overcoming this experience a little bit. You know, sure. they they get freed. Um, I feel like there isn't as much of a sense of horrific survival mm-hmm. here. Like, maybe, again, is like, lost in translation or something, but, like, it doesn't feel as much of a horror movie as something that's, like, Murders in the Room Morgue.
0: Yeah, everyone makes it out okay and gets to... Not only thank Briggs, but then when they thank him, they all take the opportunity to tell him, like, a little bit about themselves and so on.
1: I feel like this movie fits in German Expressionism in more than just the sets Hmm. and things, but I think given the time period that it's released in and everything by the end, this movie almost kind of betrays its intended genre of being a horror movie by wanting to show that people can get out of this situation. Yeah, but then if you think about where Germany goes, the horror kind of comes back in, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we, if we continue the analogy of Wigner representing a Hitler-type figure, then, you know, Briggs as a hero is a journalist, so, you know, truth and all that being the natural enemy of fascism. Mm. And then the idea that, you know, he kind of traps Wigner in his own machine and then frees everybody, and it's like kind of this, like, get out now while-you-can kind of message, you know, and and I could understand maybe, like, wanting to have a little bit of a hopeful message about the future in a movie coming out in, you know, early 1932, with, you know, the world outside being very upsetting, probably, to people living in Germany at the time.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point for why Briggs is a journalist. The, I couldn't figure out why he was a journalist rather than just a detective,
0: Mm -hmm. because,
1: like, so much of what he does, it could just be a police officer.
0: Yeah, we didn't even realize he was a journalist until a little later on in the movie because of the vague subtitles and some of his scenes at work where he's in the office, like could easily be a police station as they are a newspaper office. Yeah. Um. And then like eventually we realized what what he was supposed to be, uh, because the subtitles picked up on it.
1: I wondered if like he was a reporter rather than a cop because of actual distrust of police and authority in reality.
0: Well, and, you know, there's the distrust of authority and expressionism. That being said, each one of the segments ends with, like, the cops coming to the rescue. Yeah. Right? So, there isn't really, like, a very explicit distrust of authority in that way. Yeah. Because the cops kind of always save the day each time and uh, ultimately, like, restore the rule of law, you know. Um, And I wonder if there's You know, if we're going to keep extrapolating, uh, because, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. I wonder if there's (laughs) sort of a a kind of thing in here about, you know, when groups like the Nazis start to gain popularity, there's kind of a willful delusion about, like, well, the rule of law is going to step in and stop them, though. Mm
2: -hmm. You know,
0: they won't be able to get too far because, like, ultimately, like, the police will stop them the government will stop them, you know, they won't be able to get too far. And, of course, they do. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of a disconnect there between what the movie hopes is true uh, and what is true. So I think I think you've made a good argument about the expressionist aspects of the movie. I think you've picked up on some themes that I didn't really pick up on. Uh, so that's really interesting to think about. I still think the characters are super cardboardy.
1: That's a thing in German Expressionism, though. Sure. People being more, like... Symbols or caricatures at worst, rather than actual characters.
0: Sure. That's a good point. I guess it just feels old-fashioned to me now that we're kind of out of the era of Caligari and Genuina and Nosferatu, you know, in those early films.
1: That's a total fair point as well.
0: Um, I just wish, even if we didn't learn a lot about Briggs, I kind of wanted to know what Wigner's character's deal is a bit more. Like, the fact that he doesn't even get a name, and that we don't really understand, like what he was ever kind of after, other than just, like, this suicide club thing, which is just <laughs> a way to kill people in an entertaining and bizarre fashion.
1: It feels like he's just, like, on one con to the next, you know? Sure. He never really knows what, what the next con is going to be.
0: Yeah. So I, I kind of wish there was more to him. Definitely. So you kind of skirted along this topic, but I certainly want to know, do we think this is horror? Because there's spooky lighting, and there's macabre atmosphere, and there's morbid themes, and there's disturbing situations, but there's nothing really, like, scary. Our hero's largely unflappable. Like, he goes through all these situations and is just kind of like, Alright, so this guy murdered his wife. Alright, so the inmates have taken over this asylum. I've just got to get out of here. Okay, I'm stuck in the suicide club and he's probably going to kill me. I'll just fake my death and have a cunning, you know, plan. A
1: cunning plan.
0: Yeah, and then uh, then I'll call the cops in. Like, he's very resolved. He never seems to be too... Out dis- of his Yeah, he never seems to be too disturbed by the situations he's put in that I think are they're presented to disturb the audience, but they never really disturb him. Uh, he's ultimately totally successful. You know, Wigner's defeated. Everyone's freed. It's a very unambiguously, like, happy ending where the hero catches the villain. So... Despite kind of the macabre elements and the morbid elements, is this just a thriller with mood lighting?
1: yeah, I was having a tough time with this um when I was looking at where I would rank it because I mean we 're not onto ranking yet, but I was feeling like, oh, I feel like it 's better than this movie, but that means that it 's higher than this movie, and that like that other movie is like <laughs> much more of a horror movie than than this and so, yeah, I think I think this is definitely something to be discussed. I don't know where to go from here, you
0: Yeah, because, like, I think, you know, it's always important when we rank to, like, keep in mind we rank as horror, right? Yes. So, like, Citizen Kane would rank very low <laughs> on this list, right?
1: Yeah, his um, moments of spooks, but that's really it.
0: Yeah, there's that, like, one fucking, like, peacock or whatever. Um... <laughs> It's not a peacock, it's a parakeet. Cockatiel. Is it a cockatiel?
1: You just mean like that fade where like it screeches in the screen. Yeah, and, it's and then and like, then the like the, you zoom thing. in through
0: the eye. Ugh. Anyways, jump scare. Um, <laughs> so, thinking of this in the context of stuff, other stuff, like this sort of feels like it would have been a horror movie ten years ago. But the rules of what a horror movie is have kind of changed in that time.
1: Are you keeping in mind that we are watching this a little bit out of chronology?
0: Oh, sure. like okay. but not too much, right? like okay,
1: i'm just I'm just like checking I'm sure. Just,
0: I'm just like checking. like vampire has come out, but more importantly, like Dracula, Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, those are all things that are already out. but this movie, its version of horror feels a bit more pre nineteen twenty five You know, it feels more like Hands of Orlack sometimes in its weird mix of, like, crime police crap with horror stuff.
1: The reason why I also have trouble with this question is because it feels, again, looking at how this movie places in the history of Germany and its timeline, it's a little spooky because it feels like this is warning against something that people still go down, you know? Sure. But but that's like in the context of time, not the movie in and of itself.
0: Exactly. Like, is it a horror movie just because in retrospect the Nazis did come to power? Like, that's, it's hard to say. So far, watching the movies put everything on the list.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, Other than we've had two films we disqualified. Yeah. We disqualified Hexen because it's educational.
1: In a docu- yeah, it's a documentary
0: and we disqualified Alrauna because there was absolutely nothing horror about it at all. yeah, so I want to get back to some of our definitions of what makes a horror film, and I yes. think the most the most important one there's a lot of like narrative definitions, right like oh we've t- like one we talk about a lot is uh, there are survivors instead of heroes, which mm-hmm. is a narrative element, and it's not true of this movie. There's also like aesthetic things, right like Spooky shadows and big castles and, you know what I mean, weird angles and and stuff like that. And this movie has that. Like, I think aesthetically this movie has horror elements. I think that, for me, the most important definition, uh, and one that we defined in the first episode, is the movie's emotional goal. Mm. You know, that a thriller's emotional goal is to excite an audience, a comedy's emotional goal is to make an audience laugh, Uh, a tragedy's emotional goal is to make you cry... A horror film's emotional goal is to make the audience afraid, right? To scare the audience. Do you feel, watching this movie, that that was the goal of the film? Was the goal of the film to scare you or to just kind of excite you?
1: Hmm. Going along with this extrapolation that we've done of Wegener being a Hitler-like figure, especially in the last segment, I think if... It was the intent to almost scare us straight. Hmm. To wake us up, as it were. Hmm. I don't think it fully achieved that.
0: Yeah, because its metaphor isn't clear enough, It's like
1: the clearest in Suicide Club, and even then I feel like we're reaching a bit.
0: Yeah, it feels like maybe something that Oswald had on his mind making the movie, but it's not in the movie in the same way that like...
1: Frankenstein um, and... The fear of persecution of as a uh, homosexual,
0: right? Like the gay, the gay thing is a subtext. The fear of persecution is definitely text in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, or the way that people bring like Hitchcock's psychology into his movies, right? Yeah. Where like Rear Window isn't about his feelings about his mom or something, but you'll find critics who will bring it in there or whatever, right? So I think what? I'm just I'm just making some stuff up. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know how much credit we have to give to like this reading that we've done. I think it's a valid reading. Yeah. But I don't know how much we can credit the movie with it, especially because like it doesn't quite make it explicit enough, right? Like, so to compare mm. uh, another movie that's sort of made in a similar situation, mm. Casablanca, mm. which uh, was made just before America entered World War II, and that is a movie whose plot line is very obviously a metaphor saying America you can't afford to be isolationist and just treat everyone's problems as not yours you have to get involved you have to pick a side that's what that movie's about somebody doesn't come out at the end and point a finger at the audience in front of a big (laughs) American flag and say like here's what you need to do you just can enjoy the story it's still pretty clear that's what the movie is about. Yeah. And I don't think this movie quite reaches that level of clarity. No. Perhaps because they are just adapting to Edgar Allan Poe short stories and a Robert Louis Stevenson short story from a hundred years ago.
1: The Black Cat was done in the first one, mm-hmm. as was The Suicide Club. So I understand Oswald putting a lot more time on the asylum Dr. Tard, Professor Feather right. one, because it's like, oh, something new. Yeah. But then there's so much like emphasis still put on the Suicide Club. So that's yeah. also why I think I'm kind of leaning towards this reading. That being said, even if the intent is to scare us straight, it, that's not what it, it achieves. It does feel like, yeah, our hero has cu- saved the day at the end, has saved the people, whatever. Don't um, worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: You'll be saved. The so. cops and the papers will save you.
1: Yeah, they still have, like, trust in the system, which Mm -hmm. is also why that, like, fear of authority isn't quite there Mm -hmm. as, like, a thing from German Expressionism. If you were leaning towards putting this on the miscellaneous list rather than the actual list, um, I think you have grounds to do so. But do you recall why we put the golem on the list and not on miscellaneous? I don't know if we had miscellaneous at that point.
0: We hadn't started the miscellaneous list yet. We did discuss, however, for quite some time in that episode, not ranking it as a horror film. And I think we gave it a lot of slack because it was like a sequel to an actual horror movie. That was one of the reasons we gave it slack. And the other reason we gave it slack was because the rules of the genre hadn't been clearly defined yet. Like, The Golem came out after Caligari, but before Nosferatu. And that's sort of one of my difficulties with this movie is that the rules of the genre are pretty well defined by this point. That's why I sort of said, you know, this would be a horror movie ten years ago, but it isn't now. The other thing that we brought up with The Golem was that it wasn't quite a horror movie, but it was definitely a monster movie.
1: Yeah. If I, if I had to, like, think about it in terms of, like, if it's not horror, what is it? I would say
0: detective hero movie. Yeah, it's a thriller,
1: Right? Yeah, it's a like it's. Film it's, noir, sort
0: of. Yeah, it's catch me if you can if catch me if you can was really fucking weird. <laughs> That's great. So. Th- so I think we're in agreement then. Do you want to know something? Yeah. I was leaning towards ranking it, I wasn't leaning towards not ranking it. Oh no. I just wanted you to give me a reason that it was <laughs> horror, and we have not really been able to come up with one.
1: Yeah. Well, because like, I wasn't sure whether it was horror or not.
0: Yeah, like I have sort of a range for where I'd rank it, but like you were the one defending the movie, so I figured if anyone was going to be able to come up with like a <laughs> reason it was horror when I was kind of a little more tepid about this film, it'd be you because you liked it, and we still really haven't come up with one, yeah. um, other than its visual style, right? Like, And the fact that it's a remake of a movie we considered a horror movie at the time, and that it's got Paul Wegner. Like, it, you know, like, it's got the trappings.
1: Yeah, but I think even, like, looking at the development of the horror genre in the German films that we've seen.
0: Right. If we just look at German films, you this know... This is a
1: step backwards.
0: Yeah, like, you know, if we think about, you know, the development from, say, Caligari to Nosferatu to Hands of Orlok to the remake of Student of Prague skipping over Alrauna to Vampire,
1: But even considering Alrauna. Right. Right? Because, like, that was, quote-unquote, a horror movie of the time. But sure. it's not when we actually sit down and examine it. Yeah. And I think this is closer to Alrauna than Student of Prague.
0: Sure, yeah. Ultimately, I think it's because Wigner himself is not enough of a threat to the character of Frank Briggs. Briggs is the one hounding Wigner. He's at his heels every step of the way. You know, he finds him everywhere he goes. Um, in the uh, asylum, he's threatened by the patients, not Wigner. Uh, and he still manages to get out of that super easy. And then even when Wigner does think he has Briggs under threat, Briggs just tricks him and wins. So the fact that Wigner, while clearly an evil character, is never someone that Briggs is afraid of, right? Briggs is totally confident that he's going to make it out of this. I think that's a big part of why this movie doesn't feel scary. Like, if if this was... If Paul Wigner was the same character, but then the lead character was like a hapless American tourist on vacation <laughs> who happened to bumble into this situation or something, like, you know, maybe that would be horror, but it's not.
1: This definitely feels like a, an early Bond film.
0: Sure. Sure. That happens to be stealing a bunch of stuff from a bunch of old Musty horror stories. Yeah. Alright, so, yeah, I think we've talked ourselves into it. I think this is going on the uh, not applicable list.
1: If you'd like to see this section of the list, you can visit our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also submit questions, concerns, or an appeal in our ask box. Uh, if you don't like that, you can also email us at screamscenepodcast.gmail.com.
0: At yeah, if you speak German and you've seen this movie and we're able to understand it better than us and think that we've missed something that makes this actually horror. Yeah, uh, let us know. Please let us know uh, so that we will rank it on the list if we can get, you know, someone who can articulate why it's horror better than we could, which I assume really only will come if you speak the language and have a better understanding of, of the dialogue. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday in the evening, uh, so it's ready for you when you come home from work. We are hosted on SoundCloud and iTunes and are available through any podcast apps that are linked to those two services or through the SoundCloud RSS feed.
1: You can find us on Twitter at underscore scream Scene. Uh, we'd love it if you would give us a chat, give us a follow.
0: Right, so um, this was episode 31B. Mm-hmm. So if you've been listening along with the episodes as they are numbered chronologically, you'll find that the next episode is episode 32, White Zombie. If you're listening to these episodes as they appear in the feed, as they come out, then our next episode's back to our regularly scheduled timeline, um, (laughs) where we are fast forwarding back to the very tail end of December 1932 for Island of Lost Souls. Nice. And I'm very excited to watch that film and talk about it. It's one of my faves.
1: Well, we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.